This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Uh, we're talking about the end of religion, so what is religion? <laughs> it's, is, it this, is, is there a unifying sort of concept? Are there practices or beliefs or structures that religion actually defines? Because as you know, like Wittgenstein would say, it's doing too much work. That word is doing way too much work. So beginning with whomever wants to begin, let's go with Jack. Jack, you start the work this way. What is religion? Why does it matter? He's written a book that answers that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, it's a good question, obviously. I mean, the, the, it's a word that has, the, the word religion has come to be the word religion only in the last few centuries. Um, in the Middle Ages, didn't didn't quite function like that. It did not have the same kind of. Uh, it was not a genus for a lot of world historical uh, religious species. Um, so there's a really interesting history with the word, which uh, is summed up in part by what what. Uh, uh, Derrida once said when he referred to it as what what we call in Christian Latin religion, which gives you some sense of the way the word is has a history, it is an historical formation, and it is uh, it drips with a certain amount of colonialism. Right? All of that is very rich, very difficult, and you couldn't possibly do nine, nine sets. Uh, in in terms of the, the best the best. Description of religion that uh, I've read uh, is uh, is Tilks, that it's a matter of ultimate concern. It's it's the it's the uh, a religious person is someone who has been struck dumb by the mystery of the being which we ourselves are, which is the way Heidegger might put it, um, and is brought up short by uh, that mystery. And uh, it permeates everything, so it's not confined to going to church on Sunday. Um, I, I myself transcribe that from the, the Tillich's language. I give it an, a slightly more Davidian uh, account in terms of what I call the event, but that's, that's another matter. Okay, Meryl? Um, <clears throat> I'm inclined to think of religion... Um, more in the objective sense than in the subjective sense, although I think they're inseparable. Um, and so I, I think of religion as uh, uh, involving in some sense of the sacred. Um, and the sacred is that which becomes for those who take it seriously their ultimate concern. Um, <clears throat> one way to uh, try to make that a little more precise is with uh, Rudolf Otto's term, that which is holy other. Um, it's a little bit hard to know just what it is that is other than, but it certainly is uh, other than the most immediate everyday world of uh, our experience, at least of our experience who live in the desacralized West. Um, for many people in many centuries of human history, everyday life was every bit sacred. Uh, and not a, there, there was no secular. Um, but for us, for whom there is a, a domain that we can call the secular or this worldly, um, religion has to do with uh, that which is wholly other or radically uh, different. Uh, and both the monotheisms of the West and the Mideast and the um, pantheism, if that's what you want to call them, of the East, the Hindu and, and Buddhist uh, versions, which are not polytheistic, the, the more metaphysical side of those traditions, um, all are variations on that theme of what it is that is sacred, what it is that is wholly other. Okay, so really quickly before you go, Jeff, you used the word desacralized which I would like you to take about 30 seconds and explain the definition and the importance. Yeah, well, we think of a difference between this, this sacred and the secular. Um, today, many people in human history have not made that distinction. Uh, but once you make that, then the tendency of uh, a modern world to become more and more secular is to become less and less oriented to the sacred. And some people call that desacralization. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
do this for a living. I get it. But yes. Copyrighted. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. I love it. Jeff. Okay. I, I mean, you're asking us to do something that in the, the first week of classes for an introduction to religion class or a method in theory class that we basically demonstrate to students you can't do this. Um, and it's, it's a standard exercise if you've had a religious studies class, you know this. You, you, you're introduced to uh, 20 or 30 or 50 definitions of religion and students sort of go through the exercise of showing what's wrong with each one of these definitions of religion. Um, and oftentimes, as Jack was mentioning, there is a kind of uh, kind of colonial, sort of Western, sort of imperialistic bent uh, to many of them, um, a kind of sense of uh, cultural superiority that sort of identifies a kind of Christian, Protestant version of religiosity as the norm that then applies to other religions. And the reason why that's a problem is that once that becomes the norm, that anything that deviates from that is seen as somehow... Uh, inferior, um, not just sort of different, but inferior and lesser form of religion. To me, what the, the time I learned this experientially was when I went to a, a conference of uh, interseminarians uh, with uh, it was a, gr a group of Jews, Catholics, and Protestants, and we had a Jewish rabbi there who was our, our kind of guide and sort of talking about interfaith dialogue. And the topic of the conference was salvation. And, uh, and the, the rabbi basically said, I have no interest in salvation whatsoever. Salvation is not something that concerns me as a Jew. This is a Christian concept um, that belongs to a Christian sense of religiosity. And that blew my mind. Because at that point, I was perfectly willing to accept that religion was fundamentally about salvation. Um, so kind of being aware of the way in which the, a definition of terms oftentimes can hold a kind of uh, a kind of prejudice, a sort of bias that kind of blinds us to the ways in which people inhabit the world differently. So for me, if I have to sort of have an operating definition of religion, I, I tend to sort of think in terms of kind of worldview to try as best I can to adopt a kind of phenomenological perspective that sees different religious traditions from the inside out. Um, and that's why in my paper, the, the times I use the term religion, I kind of problematize that and say sort of religion in general basically doesn't exist. There are only sort of different kinds of religions. Now you just did something that it's going to be a 90 second problem. Oh my God. <laughs> I try not to. Logical. So I need you to explain the phenomenology in 90 seconds. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I think it's easier, I'm going to explain phenomenology of religion rather than phenomenology. Sure. Um, because I saw somebody back here reading Husserl, and that would sort of take a lot more time to, to, describe, <laughs> to describe. Phenomenology of religion, I think there's sort of basic rules of, of studying religion, and that is that one has to understand something before you critique it. Um, and sort of as best you're able, you want to put yourself in, in, in someone else's shoes and allow religion from, to speak from inside out. Um, so it, the, the test of a phenomenological understanding of different religious traditions is if as you're describing that religion is if a religious adherent of that tradition can recognize themselves in that description. Um, so that's what I mean by phenomenology. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'm with Jeff at the level of this question may be unanswerable in the, the way it's asked. However, I think that you, Jack has given a, a really nice sort of historical genealogy of what the term can mean. Merrill's giving, I think, a sort of philosophical account of what it can mean. Jeff is in problematizing those meanings and saying that they themselves betray the histories that we occupy. So I, I don't have a, a definition other than this to say. And this is a paper I recently wrote trying to bring philosophy of religion um, into conversation with religious studies or the academic study of religion which often I think there's a, a real difference of the literatures, of the conferences, of the way that they engage. And so I, I think that what Jeff just said about the fact that what is religion is a question we ask almost always at the beginning of intro to religion courses or intro to religious studies courses or something. Um, it's almost never a question that is asked at the beginning of a textbook in philosophy of religion. 
In fact, it almost always starts with arguments for the existence of a theistic God. And um, I, I know Merrill actually has taught philosophy of religion in a way that challenges this um, approach. But this is a pretty typical way to teach philosophy of religion. What we mean by God is, you know, the omni-God of classical theism. And then we talk about arguments for, challenges to, problems of evil, faith and reason questions, etc. Which then never get into the question, well, what is the it that we're talking about? What is the religion we mean when we philosophize about religion? And so I would simply say, I don't have an answer to the question other than I think it's a question that philosophers have to start asking and learning from colleagues in academic departments of religion and religious studies to help us think about how that conversation can look in productive ways. So, can I ask a follow-up question? Absolutely. Uh, so, so Jack's in a unique position. He was in a department of philosophy for a very long time and then went to a department of religious studies at Syracuse. And so that point that Aaron's making about kind of problematizing the, the term of religion, is that something that you sort of witnessed in your different careers, Villanova and Syracuse? Um, at Syracuse, I did. But not, not, I mean, I was in the philosophy department. I didn't teach, exactly teach philosophy of religion in the philosophy department. I took courses of kind of philosophy. Um, Syracuse, it was constant to be, but but not uh, not not in my experience with philosophy. Okay, so since we're having an entire conference on the end of this thing that's hard to define, um, <laughs> and I know we, we we try to like mini and smart for freshmen, and then you, you work from there. Uh, why does the end of religion matter, and is it a good thing or a bad thing? And we'll go backwards this time, so we'll start with Aaron. Um, so here, um, you know, the sort of favorite thing that academics do, not just philosophers, but philosophers in particular, is to answer questions by saying, well, it depends. I did this, I think, three times in my paper. Well, it depends on who you ask. <laughs> these people say, these other people say. Um, I think if by religion um, you mean the kind of thing that Jeff has described as dangerously misogynistic, nested necessarily in imperial histories, um, committed and wedded to what Jack often will refer to as these histories of violence, which is why the strong theology that Jack talks about um, is not just stable and determinate, but it is stable and you might say the rock against which others are then broken, right? And I think that if if that's what we mean by religion, yeah, and religion probably should end in, in ways that would open. Um, Jeff referred to a guy named Gianni Vattimo who makes the claim that you need the death of God for the possibility of real religion, of, of Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc. to flourish as ways of life committed to these texts that operate in the traditions, rather than these histories of power, these histories of dominance, etc. So if that's what we mean by religion, power, violence, um, self-protective theological discourse, then yeah, religion should end. But again, my view is, it, at least within Christianity, and I'd be um, entirely, I think, right to say in the vast majority of world religions, um, there are versions of those religions that I would say, look, the same is true for Judaism, Islam, Hindu, Baha'i, whatever it might be, Taoists to say, look, we, we want that kind of religion to end precisely so. What we mean by being Buddhist or being Hindu can flourish. And I think that's where when you'll hear even politically calls for, you know, it's usually cashed out in political rhetoric, which I think is dangerous, but we call for moderate, you know, people in a religion to speak against the more extreme versions. And um, I think there's something weird about that because, of course, it looks like, well, moderation and compromise then is just kind of where truth happens. It might be the case that, no, there's something wrong about the view that's being offered, and the moderate view actually then is just an extreme rejection of the wrongness. So I'm not a big fan of the idea of moderation, but I do like the idea of saying the religions themselves should be imminently invested in critiquing that dangerous notion of religion. Okay. Jeff? Yeah, I, mean, I really liked what Aaron did with the comma in his paper um, at the end, third section. Um, I'm very sort of sympathetic to that, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember the formulation you used about um, 
sort of the sort of religion, sort of the ending of religion as a prerequisite for faith is what you reject. That's what I reject. And and so I, I was thinking about that in connection with your comment about sort of whether it's a good or bad thing that religion ends. And and um, I don't think this is a kind of punting of the question, but but I I was trying to sort of make a case in the first part of my paper that. Uh, the end of religion is not a good or bad thing. It is. It happens. You know, whether we whether we want it to or not. Um, sort of the way in which sort of faith is conceived, the way in which we understand sort of God, religiosity, the way in which we practice our faith. Uh, these things are always kind of reinventing themselves. Um, so you know, there's a whole series of endings and beginnings that sort of take place. Um, and yeah, I don't want to make any sort of moral valuation of that sort of being good or bad. What I what I do want to suggest is that there are untapped resources within any and every religion that can be um, that can be resourced, that can be exploited. Um, and oftentimes sort of their that sort of dominant tradition within a given faith tends to sort of prevail and and where people are feeling sort of alienated or ostracized or disenchanted, the fact that sort of they don't know that these sort of imminent options exist within a given tradition, I think is the great failure in how we talk about religion, practice religion, and sort of think theologically. Okay, thank you. Meryl? If you think about race relationships uh, in the United States, uh, it's easy to uh, identify what um, many of us, I hope, uh, would uh, call bad religion and good religion. Um, slavery was justified religiously, and many of the most vigorous defenders of slavery did so uh, as part of their Christian worldview. On the other hand, the anti-slavery movement, uh, both in England and here in the United States, um, was uh, very often led uh, by a Christian faith, uh, when you get to the civil rights movement, uh, the same thing is true. Some of the most deeply residual um, anti-black uh, racism um, back in the 50s and 60s, and I'm afraid even to the present day, although it's less uh, overt, uh, less uh, confessional, uh, is closely relied to uh, certain forms of religion. Whereas again, the civil rights movement um, was led by a coalition of uh, Christian ministers and Jewish rabbis and um, many of their followers and uh, was in a very large sense a, a religious movement. Um, so if we're talking about the, whether the death of religion is a good or a bad thing, um, it depends on what kind of religion you're talking about and where you stand as to whether uh, those different kinds are good things or bad things. Um, but the, the factual question, uh, it seems to me, uh, that leads to the talk about the death of religion um, is partly triggered by the Gallup poll and, and other polls that tell us that um, in Europe, which for centuries was Christendom, uh, church attendance is way down. Uh, and that even here in the United States, where church attendance has been fairly stable, um, there are fewer and fewer people each time the question is asked who identify themselves with any particular religious tradition. Um, and in, in that sense, there is a secularization that is uh, an observable sociological fact about Europe and the United States. Um, at the same time, um, especially here in the United States, certain kinds of religion have become more and more vocal uh, and more and more aggressive um, and are uh, anything but dying out. Um, and so it's a very mixed story uh, factually whether uh, religion is disappearing or uh, whether it's becoming more importantly a part of our culture. And, and in some respects, both stories are, are true. Thank you. Jack? Um, when, when Jake told me this, uh, the title of the uh, conference, I said, uh, I said, well, that's a, that's a pun, right? Mm -hmm. The end of religion. 
And he said, yes, this is a pun. <laughs> I said, well, you should have made it the ends in the plural of religion. Uh, and then everybody would get the joke. It's a joke. The ends, of course, meaning both terminatio, cessation, but also telos. Right? So the English word to end does both those things. And the, uh, in, the, in the very sense of terminatio, of finishing it off, uh, or the death of religion, I, I, uh, I always like to say uh, when Nietzsche announced the death of God or the death of religion, a funny thing happened on the way to the funeral. <laughs> Namely, it got reinvented on the way to the funeral. Um, second thing, but then if you look at the other sense, what's its end or purpose? It's tell us. Then I like to think, well, I think of my uh, youth, you know, and, J and JFK saying, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Well, what's the end of religion? Well, ask not what religion can do for you, but what, uh, or what you can do for religion, but what religion does for you. What, it's, what, it's, what kinds of uh, transformations it's capable of affecting. And in that case, then, then I think you've got to talk about, re about religious. Religious life occurs where ends are suspended. That is to say, where you're dealing with something of unconditional value. And then I like to go back to, to the medieval mystics and to Meister Eckhart and the Beguines and this notion of living without why. So in a certain sense, the end of religion is the end of ends. It's the uh, end... Uh, free dwelling in the sphere of the unconditional. Okay, so before we move on to questions from social media and from people in the room, um, <clears throat> there is this sense where the title of the seminar could be a megachurch sermon series. Right, so it's that relationship versus religion sort of concept. And most of the people, you, you guys are talking, I say guys literally, you guys are talking about something that for many people is, I go to mosque or synagogue or temple or church every week, and yet it's really difficult to define what you're talking about in the context of religion if you mean day-to-day -day sort of praxis. So how does this that you're talking about relate to day-to-day -day praxis? Jack, you get to start. <laughs> At least he didn't ask you, you to talk about that. You can start with somebody else. Jack, he didn't ask you in 90 seconds to talk about what the Beguines are. So I think you made off pretty easy. So. Should I begin with the Beguines? <laughs> Well, you're talking about the end of the beginning. <laughs> the begins and the ends. Um, what was the question? <laughs> well, I actually think that all of this has very, very, very profound uh, applications, and, and uh, it, re it really is a matter of proxies. I actually think it's not a question of applying this theory to proxies. It's a question of getting the theory to catch up to the proxies, because the proxies is there. Proxies in is in place, and it's. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think. I, I, I think that. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll actually talk about it. Come to my talk tomorrow, and I'll explain this whole thing. It, it's. I, I, th I think that. What postmodern theory is saying is that religion is not a matter of theory. It, it has to do with a form of life. It is a form of life. And the theory is, just a, is articulating something that's going on. It's also why I, I don't think it can be dealt with in terms of propositions and proving propositions true and false. Uh, or kicking people out of church because they got their propositions wrong. Uh, I think it, it is that very proxies. And then tomorrow, I'll, my talk will be a little example of, of just why I think that's the case. Okay, thank you. Mary? Um, I agree with what Jack just said to a certain extent, um, that re religion is a way of life, uh, wherever it is taken seriously at all. Um, but a way of life, it seems to me, is uh, an integration of beliefs and practices. Um, and so beliefs are important, not simply as ends in themselves, but because of the role they play in shaping the practices. 
And the practices are important, um, not entirely for them uh, on their own account, but also because of the way they support the beliefs. Um, and so the, the, the two work together. Um, and um, if one has a religion where the beliefs and practices are relevant one day a week and irrelevant on the other six days, um, then that might be um, what I like to call Census Bureau religion. If the Census Bureau asked you to check off one of the boxes, what are you? Uh, you check it off. Or if you're running for Congress, for sure, uh, you check off one of the boxes. We have one, by the way, now in the House of Representatives who claims no religious identity. It's the first time it's happened um, in, in recent uh, time. They even before we got to that, we had somebody who identified, self-identified as a Muslim. Uh, but now there's at least one who has no religious identity. But uh, that kind of uh, running for Congress or uh, Census Bureau religion, it seems to me, is a very truncated form. Um, and unless those beliefs and practices filter down and shape my everyday life by shaping who I am, shaping my identity, uh, then it seems to me that we're not talking about religion in a very deep sense. Of course, what difference it makes to my daily life depends on what religion uh, I'm affiliated with. Affiliated isn't the right word there. Uh, I am shaped by. Good. Jeff? Yeah, building on what Merrill just said, there was a, um, I think the, the study was that Americans would be more inclined to vote for a Muslim president than someone who didn't identify with any religion whatsoever, than a self-proclaimed atheist. And that's, I mean, I'm not saying either one is what it is, good or bad, but it's just the degree to which there's a kind of expectation of our politicians to identify with a kind of normative sense of religiosity. It's pretty overwhelming when you consider the kind of levels of fear and Islamophobia that exist out in mainstream culture. That's not my answer, though. I, just, uh, I, I think I have two answers um, to the question as I remember it. The first one is, I guess, a little bit autobiographical. And when I was a, when, when I was still an undergraduate, um, I was a history major. I wasn't. Uh, I, w I was sort of, I guess, sort of deeply religious, um, and I was trying to sort of make sense of my faith. Um, in some ways, I felt a little bit kind of constrained, and, and I think as Aaron was talking about trying to sort of figure out ways in which I could sort of be unapologetically an intellectual, like to, to kind of have a thinking faith, to, to, to recognize that that was okay to ask questions. And to me, the kind of, the kind of moment of liberation was not by kind of getting, stepping outside of religion and sort of finding these kind of external critiques that would just sort of dismantle or dismiss it. Uh, but instead, it was kind of understanding more of the tradition of Christianity itself. So the, the more deeply I studied the history of Christianity, uh, specifically for me at the time, it was sort of Protestant thought and sort of Martin Luther, the more I realized that the kind of the, the faith as I understood it was very limiting. Um, and so it was this kind of imminent opening up of the tradition that all of a sudden helped me recognize the almost kind of infinitude of possibilities, this kind of deep reservoir within the tradition. Um, and, I, and I think that's where this stuff is practical. And that's in sort of much of my work is trying to sort of um, accent, highlight, sort of lift up some of those traditions that um, within the tradition that aren't as readily known. And so that leads to my, my second question, or second answer to this question. I think when you look at those Gallup polls and, and the, the big headlines from the most recent Gallup poll was the number of nuns, which I reference in my paper, or non-affiliated religious people, uh, people who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious or don't identify with any specific religious affiliation. That doubled in the most recent poll. And so that, yeah, got all the headlines. And to me, that you know, in some ways, it, it obviously sort of polling is problematic, but it sort of presents a kind of false choice to people. Either you are this or you're you're not, right? And it's the problem. It's the reason why I'm sort of drawn to radical theology. That 
when I say Svavadimo says that the death of God liquidates the philosophical basis for atheism it's instead of sort of thinking about sort of God this way or this way it's either you accept this and all the kind of baggage that goes along with it or you must be an atheist so there, there are kind of these third options a kind of non-theistic way of sort of thinking about God and so to me this is immensely practically important in the sense that it provides a kind of uh, existential kind of lifeline for people who don't sort of like the kind of simplistic answers that they might have um, been offered up. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and I, I think my, my colleagues are all saying things with which I would agree. Um, so I'll hit sort of three points that maybe um, just emphasize some of the things that they've already said. One, I think Merrill's right to say that religion as a form of life um, Maybe not distinctively, but at least, uh, or maybe not uniquely, but at least distinctively, um, has both cognitive and non-cognitive aspects. So this is where a quote from Kierkegaard that I used in my paper where it says, you know, I'm not really concerned about knowing except that knowing precedes action, right? So it does seem to me, like yesterday when I drove from South Carolina to uh, Philadelphia, it was really important that I know which is the best way to go because the practice that I'm engaged in driving to Philadelphia would be radically dangerous if all I did was say, just go west. Right? I'd call you from you know, New Mexico. I can't find the place. Where is it? So I think that knowledge has to be part of this. Uh, the question is, then what terms do we use? And this is where I actually think really good stuff comes out of hardcore analytic philosophy of religion about, well, what do we mean by knowledge? And what kind of knowledge? And is it knowledge by acquaintance, like I know how to do something? Is it knowledge by relation, the way that I would say, well, I know my wife? Is it propositional knowledge, which is what Jack's worried about? I know that. X, Y, and Z is the case. And it seems to me that parts of all these different knowings go into something like the form of life that is religious existence. How they cash out, I think, again, often, will slide one type of knowledge versus another type of knowledge, depending on, again, the particular religious community. Unfortunately, the religious communities um, in which I have largely existed um, tend to operate according to what I sometimes refer to as a litmus test conception of, of knowledge or religious belief where it is this, you know, can you check these boxes, as Merrill said. And one of the things that happens in, in all the conversations I've had with pastors who then say, you know, and again, I should say this publicly, I think all the pastors that have sort of encouraged me to leave their churches have done so in a bizarrely pastoral way. Like they're trying genuinely to sort of help me find a place that fits me better. So I don't, I don't see this as like vicious on their part at all. Again, I think it's a problem. <laughs> I wish it weren't the case. But I don't think they're doing this because, like, you know, they hate me. I think they're actually trying to be a good shepherd to the flock to whom they serve, right? Um, so the last thing I'll say about that is if litmus tests, conceptions of belief and religious knowing are problematic for all kinds of reasons that Jack and Marilyn Jeff have all pointed to, I think it's important to recognize non-cognitive aspects, so the practical stuff that we do, will shape then the kinds of beliefs and knowledge claims that are possible for us. This is what William James sometimes talks about as you have to have live belief options. So the example I'll give here is I have a five and a half year old son, um, Atticus, and Atticus is right now forming the way of life that will give rise to the beliefs that he will find himself you know, struggling with or having to get therapy later to overcome or something. And so where I go to church and where I take him to church, he's in coloring and making like you know, cotton ball angels and stuff, and yet it's creating for him a mode of practice by which some beliefs will either be live or not live for him. So I think it's important to see we are responsible for both of these sides. But yet, I don't just say, well, hey, this is true, try it out. I'm actually interested in, well, what is it this church says about what is true of God and what it says is true of moral life, etc., so that I can make sure it's the kind of place that holds beliefs that I think will yield the form of life that will then form the kinds of beliefs I think that are plausible for him. Right? It, it's that, that constant back and forth. Good. Okay, so I'm going to ask you all for questions. And here's the deal. If you ask for a specific response, whether it's Jack or Marilyn, whoever, I'm going to ask for the sort of oppositional other 
to have a response, but we don't probably have time at this point to do all four at a time. So just um, first hands and we go. There you go, sir. Just, this is for anyone to answer. I'll, I'll go from the comment you made about the box, the boxes, the ideas in the boxes about religion and the litmus test. It isn't part of the definition of religion precisely that there is a litmus test. And that litmus test is the core of its continuity, the continuity of its narrative and how, if you're going to bring postmodernism in to the mix, how's that going to work? Well, uh, I think it's a sort of a sociological fact that if you're going to have a community, it has to have a fairly specific identity. Um, and one of the ways in which religious communities have their identity is in terms of shared beliefs. Um, and in that sense, um, it seems to me uh, inescapable and not necessarily a bad thing that various religious communities define themselves in terms of various beliefs and various practices, both in their hopefully coherent interrelation, um, and say, uh, this is who we are. Um, and the two caveats that seem to me to need to go with that uh, are our first, uh, to borrow a term from uh, Aaron, the, the hermeneutical humility um, that I am not the only, uh, we are not the only community on earth. In, in opera, every once in a while you get what's called a thinks quartet or a sextet or octet and three or four or five singers will come up and line up across the stage and they will pour out their heart and they will tell you what they're thinking at this time. And in accordance with the operatic convention, they will act as if no one else is on the stage because they are giving you what's going on inside their mind. They're not talking to each other. They're talking to us. Um, and uh, that's that sort of... Um, we are the people and wisdom will die with us. Um, it seems to me, and at least in a postmodern context, is inappropriate for any religious community and therefore in various ways there need to be various kinds of um, ecumenism. Um, the other caveat, it seems to me, uh, is the need for such communities to find a way to be welcome, welcoming uh, to those who are already insiders. And I remember one pastor uh, expressing this in a way that I thought was really Solomonic. And somebody came and said, well, you know, I, I really feel at home in this congregation. I like the worship. I even like the sermons. <laughs> um, but there, there's, there's this part of the denominational creed that, that I really have trouble with. And it may have been the Apostles' Creed for all I remember of the story. And he said, oh, that's okay. He says, that's the faith of the church. Uh, appropriate as much of it as you can and worship with us in the meantime. Um, and he didn't make it a litmus test in the sense of unless you can sign on, it's all or nothing. Um, my, my mother was an all or nothing Christian. And when uh, I, I came to have some doubts about some of the things that were included in her all, uh, she, she tended to write me off. Um, and um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the fact that my faith survived that. I know that there are people whose faith has not survived that kind of exclusiveness. Uh, you're either 100% with us or forget about it. Uh, you're excommunicated. Um, and so that's, that's the second caveat. Yeah. Well, 
I like the way you put it, because you put it in terms of some kind of continuity. Uh, I mean, I think that everybody up here, all, all four of us, are really interested in hermeneutics. And I think hermeneutics is exactly the right sort of thing you need to have some kind of uh, tradition or some kind of continuity, so long as that continuity, because, because it keeps the tradition open and self-reinventing. And it, it, uh, it, allow, it allows the thing to, to move. If the, the death of a tradition is to fix it or to, or to freeze it. And so it has to be a process of endless reinvention. But if it reinvents itself in such a way that it's unrecognizable with its predecessor forms, then it's just created another tradition and it's going off in another direction. But when you look back over a tradition, you, you can see how, 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 how it will have been, how it has been, how it has turned out to be, to have been. A, tra- a tradition. Uh, for example, t- what, what's Christianity? Christianity is the is the memory and the promise of Jesus. That's the way I like to put it. It's the memory and the promise, and and that memory is constantly being recalled in new ways, and that promise is constantly being rethought in new ways, and the whole history of that thing, what, however it will have turned out to be, is, is what it will mean. So in hermeneutics, a thing doesn't so much have a meaning as it has a history. And, and that history has a kind of non-programmable continuity. And I think hermeneutics is, and, and particularly a, a sort of hermeneutic deconstruction, is the only way to make that work. Otherwise, the thing will become, it'll freeze and it'll become exclusionary. Or it will just dissipate. Questions? Yes, sir. So, this is at least for Dr. Robbins. Um, others have answers, that's great. Um, and I don't mean for this to be divisive amongst you, but hopefully it's clar- clarifying. Um, one of the characteristics of radical theology that you would say is uh, political. And I was wondering if we looked at um, Aaron's account for faith, comma, in a postmodern age, and sort of the not necessarily um, meaning this approach or that approach, if that is compatible with radical theology in that radical theology is political and maybe therefore communally active or, or like an activist sort of movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and this, I think this is a larger question about sort of postmodernism too, in which the, a lot there have been any number of critics, you know, especially over the last ten years or so, who kind of suggested that you know, postmodern deconstruction leads to a kind of either kind of political decisionism or a kind of political quietism. Um, I mean, I think certainly people have given good answers to why that isn't necessarily the case. But I mean, I think movements like speculative realism, sort of new materialism, these are these are efforts to to try to say concretely what sort of uh, postmodernism might have been reticent to say, um, sort of to make sort of declarations, to take stands. And so, uh, I mean, I, I, so I got at that in my paper by way of Paul Kahn and sort of a kind of critique of liberal procedure, procedurism in which you have sort of endless deliberation sort of with the, the kind of hope for eventual agreement, which might never come, but meantime you do have to make sort of calculations and decisions. And so I, I, I am sort of wanting to suggest that, that um, so radical theology is not betraying itself by expressing a kind of preferential political option. Um, and that's one way of kind of tying it sort of to liberation theology, um, but, it, but it's also to try to, to kind of push it sort of beyond its comfort zone. And so, yeah, I mean, I think there is a real tension there. I don't know. I don't have a better answer for you. I think you, you've got your finger on sort of the pulse of where 
a lot of this sort of really interesting sort of debate is happening right now. Um, and, and I'm sympathetic to the question. Uh, okay, 60 seconds. Why is the plan important to the engineers going to respond to the question? Yeah. Um, why is Khan important? Uh, and I think sort of Khan's been the most, as, as people have begun to sort of uh, think about sort of questions about the relationship between religion and politics, um, sort of proper relationship between religion and politics, and as political theology has emerged as this kind of burgeoning discourse of interest. Um, sort of Kahn, I think, has, has been sort of the best interpreter of uh, what Carl Schmitt is about, who is the kind of the, the person who defined political theology as an alternative to modern liberalism. And, and, and a kind of a way of talking about civil religion in such a way that you kind of see the, the kind of religious or sort of theological underpinnings to the, the social and political fabric of our everyday lives. Um, so that's, I think, that's what it is. Yeah. Um, so as I understand the question, maybe it's just a part of it, but this is the, the part that I'll speak to because I think what, what Jeff said, quite a bit of it I'm actually very sympathetic to. Um, <clears throat> I, I like the fact that Jeff is... Um, saying, look, there might be these preferential options, both ethically, politically, um, maybe even, I think, metaphysically, relative to certain types of, the way my language, anti-realism in some cases is sort of preferable to other types of realism. In his language, speculative realism might be kind of where that comes together, right? Um, but the end of your question, I think, was something like this. So is radical theology compatible with the sort of faith that I've described as lived out, comma, in a postmodern age? My answer here is um, yes, if the radical theology is not necessarily just another name for the subjectivist solution, which I don't think it has to be. It, 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 a lot hangs on sort of the weeds, you know, I sort of bracketed in my paper, so lots in the weeds here, right? It's where the snakes hang out. It's also usually where the rabbits hang out. I mean, it, it's both the place where we find perfection, and it's also the place where we are able to ambush. And so, um, Jack and I actually have a, a debate in print where I um, suggest that maybe weak theology is just another version of strong theology. It's just one that looks a whole lot more tolerant and liberal and you know generally sort of progressive. And Jack's response, which I think is entirely sensible, is look, I don't take what I'm doing to be a sort of first order account of what is true about God. I take it to be what's going on in the accounts that we give about things that are true about God. Right? <clears throat> so the way that he and I both will refer to this is it, it's a second order discourse. Right? And what I'm worried about is that second order discourse smuggling in a first order discourse. I think he and I ultimately, and maybe I, mean, I don't know where Jeff stands on this, which would be interesting. <clears throat> I think maybe Jack and I sort of disagree about how much there is there. But I have no problem saying if this is a first order account, but it's just a, a kind of very progressive, very <clears throat> liberal, very cosmopolitan, maybe even sort of, you know, sort of generally neo-Marxist or whatever. The word is weak. <clears throat> what? <laughs> or weak. It's weak. I mean, if it's that stuff, I actually think, cool. Like, that, that's another account of the way we, that's another kind of faith, right? Being a communist, comma, in a postmodern world is, is, I think, a kind of living out a sort of orientation toward an ultimate concern about a particular notion of justice. So, so I guess that's my answer. Right? Is just I think it depends if this is the subjective solution. I'm out. If it's an, an, an attempt itself to find that interesting third option, which I said there might be a bunch of others, I think maybe that more substantivist account of radical theology might be another option. It's probably one I'm not going to agree with all the way down. But I think it absolutely is another version of postmodern faith. Absolutely. Okay, so I promised that tomorrow night we're going to make the divine God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we literally going to start tomorrow night. Uh, and, and you can, and actually, Aaron, make it up to yourself. First order, second order account. Uh, you're also going to find that tomorrow night. 
so we all have another question. One more, and then we'll do all four of you to answer another question that came in via the internet. So I actually kind of like, so who would like to have the question? Yep. Yep. Thanks. Um, I think this question is for, for Jeff, but uh, for, for anyone. But I would note uh, for Jack, uh, fill another one by two. So. <laughs> this real, my, my parents are here tonight, and they, during my paper, they were listening to the LSU. <laughs> journey, they're very proud of it back there, even though LSU lost back there. <laughs> So, uh, so uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not happy, <laughs> but I, you know, I just want to let Jack happen. Uh, but, but so my question was going to be, so I'm going to mention a philosopher, so Gadamer, and Gadamer, and the reason I think it's important is when he, he talks about what, what goes on in the kind of modern project, he talks about kind of, you know, the broad like, projection of authority um, in the modern project, and I think also, he doesn't, he doesn't talk about the second part that I want to mention, but like the kind of, uh, I think he said something about Exiled from a, uh, ecclesial settings or something along those lines, and I, I wonder, and that's I think part actually also of the of the kind of modern products. I, I wonder if this kind of detachment from authority and kind of detachment from um, ecclesial authorities um, or scriptural authorities or what have you, if if that is not in fact not postmodern but rather a continuation of the modern, um, and so. So I guess two more questions. So is that, and then, is there a place in postmodern reflections on theology for authority? Hmm. Uh, that's actually such a good question. Hmm. All four of you to answer. Yes. That'll be it. Hmm. That's really good. Hmm. Who wants to start, Jack? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jack starts. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get from being yeah, on the, the far right, Jack. The, the authority for me is the authority of what I call, what Derrida calls and I call within the event. So the authority is the authority of what is addressing us, what interrupts us, what discomforts us, what uh, causes us trouble and sets us back on our heels. Uh, what, gets, what gets relativized in, in, that, in that account? is the, the stabilized and, and handed down authorities of institutions and uh, in, in the case of religion, not only religious institutions, but, but uh, the, the but academic institutions. And so ra radical theology has a much better chance. Radical theology for me has to do with the events that undermine religious beliefs. Okay. And that that you just get a better result doing radical theology if you're not going to lose your job because of what you said. I, mean, I just think that's a fact. And so, so radical theology operates more. It can only operate under very open conditions and very, very loose ones. Now, it's 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 it's. It's, uh, the Enlightenment, it doesn't, it doesn't simply continue uh, modernity because modernity was only interested in, in extricating itself from the authority of revelation. Because modern, postmodernism is also interested in extricating itself from the authority of what calls itself reason. Right? It's, try, it's, trying to make, it's trying to have a more reasonable idea of reason and a more enlightened idea of, the enlighten, uh, of enlightenment and uh, a more revelatory sense of, re of, of revelation. So it's, it's moving, uh, it's, it's trying to sort of get beneath the radar of both reason and revelation and deal with something more elemental. But it doesn't mean that it's on its own or that it's just simply, uh, the, the, the simply emotivist. I think um, in this respect that postmodernism is a continuation of, of modernity um, insofar as modernity is attempt to extricate itself um, from revelation and from a church and a state which tried to make themselves absolute by an appeal uh, to revelation. Um, I think if it makes it, I think Jack is quite right that um, reason itself uh, came to be seen as something from which uh, one needed to be uh, extricated or at least to have it redefined. So uh, it, there's a broader scope to the thing, but there is uh, a continuing uh, attempt to um, 
a displaced authority um, on the part of many postmodern thinkers. And my own view is that um, all the versions of postmodernism, and tomorrow I'll present what I call a big tent uh, conception of the postmodern, um, that all of them uh, place constraints on the kinds of uh, meta comments we can make about our beliefs and practices, um, but do not have substantive um, authority over those beliefs and practices. Now, of course, if you take the writings of Derrida or the writings of, you know, name anybody, as a totality, there are substantive commitments in them. Um, what I'm suggesting is that the distinctively um, postmodern, uh, the things that identify them as postmodern, um, uh, have to do with the status of our beliefs and practices and not their content. And for me, those postmodern qualifications are compatible with a, a very traditional uh, mere Christianity. Um, and for mere Christianity, there is a very important place for authority. Um, sometimes that's the authority of Scripture alone. Sometimes it's the authority of scripture and tradition. Sometimes it's the authority of scripture and tradition and the magisterium. Um, but none of those, it seems to me, are inherently incompatible with the epistemic constraints that distinguish postmodernism from modernity's conception of reason uh, from which uh, postmodernists are trying to extricate themselves. You know, I, 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 in some ways, what I, I hear both Jack and Merrill saying is uh, postmodernism is a continuation and radicalization of the modern crisis of authority. Um, and oftentimes that's put in, in sort of negative terms, the collapse of meta narratives. I mean, I, I, what I tried to suggest in my paper is you can't spin this positively. It's not a sort of a collapse of meta narratives, but sort of a proliferation, an explosion of different meta narratives. But then the, the issue is that once you have these competing authorities making claims on you, um, that's its own crisis of authority. And in some sense, that's the end of religion or de facto the death of God, right? Once you, once you are in a position in which you are forced to sort of pick and choose which authorities are going to be operative, um, you're sort of putting yourself in the place that sort of religious authority once sort of claimed as its, its prerogative. Right. So I, I take that question seriously. I mean, what I what I tried to describe in my paper, which I think you're picking up on, is this sense of radical theology facing this double exile or double displacement. Um, it, I mean, it's not really welcome in the church uh, for for I guess obvious reasons. Maybe not good reasons, but obvious reasons. And it's not really welcome in the academy either. Um, and so, can you have a rhetorical strategy that makes a virtue out of that necessity, in which you kind of recognize a kind of freedom in that that kind of that sort of no place, never land? Um, and, I, and I think that's where um, you know someone like Charles Winquist, which I mentioned, is really interesting. Uh, the kind of minor intensive use of a major discourse. And, and the last thing I say, I don't think this needs explanation, but. Deleuze said um, that it's only our age that discovered theology, which is such a kind of crazy thing to say, right? I mean, it's in the, it's in the appendix of logic of sense. And, it's, and so, so now sort of theology can become what theology is meant to be only after we sort of abandon certain conceptions of what theology ought to be. Um, so I, I think that's where that kind of crisis of authority works within radical theology. Um. Let me try to answer this by weaving a couple threads together. Um, it, it, I actually find a lot of help in thinking about authority from Nicholas Wolterstorff, um, who has a sort of inverted Kantian book, right, which is called you know, Reason Within the Bounds of Religion Alone. And what Wolterstorff claims there, um, and I've said this repeatedly in, in my writing, sort of one of those things I quote kind of in everything because I try to show, hey, here's a hardcore analytic philosopher of religion doing the stuff that we think you have to mention Heidegger and Deleuze to get to, right? He says, quote, we are all profoundly historical creatures. <clears throat> and why that's important is he links it to the idea of what counts as evidence for us. And so I would say, 
of course there's got to be a space for authority in postmodernism, or we couldn't make sense of what an argument would look like. Right? I don't know what it would mean to defend postmodernism as the best way forward, or radical theology as the best way forward, or you know, um, you know, Merrill's account of a sort of Kierkegaardian view, or Jack's account of a different Kierkegaardian view, unless they're going to give reasons for why they think this is the best you know, idea on offer. But we always appeal to some sort of authority when we do that. The question is, well, what status do those authorities have? Are they unquestionable, or are they themselves background conditions, forms of life maybe even, out of which things like data is possible, out of which things like arguments are able to be given? And if they are that latter thing, which is what Wolterstorff argues, he calls you know, control beliefs, these sort of authorities by which our evidence and data becomes possible, then what we can realize is, well, hmm, kind of like in an idea of scientific paradigm revolution, eventually we might get so much data and evidence internal to a particular authority structure that it causes us to challenge that authority structure. <clears throat> so I, in my Kierkegaardian postmodern self, want to say there is nothing absolutely off the table for existing human inquirers, existing human people, there's nothing off the table when it comes to that possibility of itself coming back into play as the questioned. But the only way it could come back into possibility as the questioned is if we've now allowed some other commitment or non-cognitive practice or form of life or influence to then be functioning authoritatively such that the question could be asked, into, asked as a question. Nietzsche even has this great line, which I've never found. <laughs> Maybe my distinguished colleagues can tell me where it is. But David Wood at Vanderbilt used to quote this all the time. He would say, look, God's not dead so long as we still believe in grammar. So, look, authority, where we're using sentences that have semantic content and syntactical structure according to the authority of something called, you know, general English. Of course we've got authority structures in play. We couldn't talk without them. But we can then question. I, I gave a talk once in Maine. And I said, how y'all doing? Thanks so much for having me. And they started laughing. And I was like, I'm sorry, I missed them. You said, y'all. <laughs> of course I did. That's the way I speak. You know. And it was like, I had broken some big rule there. You know. Or like when I used to wear ball caps when I taught at Swanee. It was just like something you don't do. You know. So, yeah, I, I think, of course, we use authority structures. The point is, as postmodernists, and I want to then suggest, also, maybe even as a determinant, you know, identified with a tradition Christian, those authority structures are always put into question. That's what I was trying to show by, look, even the Hebrew Bible and New Testament is deeply invested in the task of those things that were off the table, let's bring them back to focus. I think that's super important. All right. <clears throat> 60 seconds each to close. This is a good question that came to the internet. I do want to deal with it. I know this is the last one I live. This is the last one. But you only get 60 seconds. Uh, Postmodernity has been seen primarily as a corrective to certain things about religion, Christianity, wherever you want to phrase it. What is the affirmative, positive use of postmodernity in a religious structure? And there, in 60 seconds each, all the way down, we'll be done. I'm going to answer in a really weird way. Um, <clears throat> Merrill said that his mother was an all or nothing. Um, kind of person, and he is thankful he didn't, in some sense, lose his faith internal to that relationship. Um, my grandfather, to whom I've also dedicated the book, I'm sorry, Vanessa, is um, the reason, to be honest, why Pentecostalism will not get off the table for me. And it's because he was a Pentecostal preacher in the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, um, who never let appeals to authority stop conversations. It was always, but why do you think that? Well, what do you think it could mean? Well, why is it that we take the Bible seriously? It was, this is what Sunday afternoons looked like for me, and he was the Pentecostal pastor. So because that's what I have as my background, the idea of saying, so what's the affirmative content of postmodernism? Again, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of affirmative, except in the sense of we live in worlds, and these worlds are complicated and messy, and paying attention to that will always require us to have a sort of question mark everywhere sort of mentality toward what we hold to be true. Those are these kind of things. I'll be brief. I think it's, it's affirmative in the sense that it's true. Um, 
and I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> In Henry the Fourth, uh, Part Two, um, King Henry the Fourth famously says, "Uneasy uh, lies the head that wears the crown." And the message of the negative message of postmodernism is that I am not God, I am not the center, we are not God, we are not the center, and that's good news. That takes away from us a burden that we cannot possibly fulfill, and it makes us much worse than we could possibly imagine uh, whenever we try to uh, occupy that place that doesn't belong to us. I think postmodernism is a theory that all of our beliefs and practices are constructed. Are historically, socially, politically, uh, incarnately, and in every other possible way, constructed, and consequently deconstructible. Therefore, what, what drives postmodernism, what makes postmodernism to be what it is, it is that it's the affirmation of the undeconstructible in all of our constructions. And the undeconstructible is never constructed. Once it's constructed, it's deconstructible. But what's driving the construction, what, what makes it happen, what moves history, what takes uh, over, is some kind of obscure uh, desire, uh, premonition, uh, intimation, hope for the undeconstructible. Postmodern theory, as I see it, is fundamentally theory and its fundamental, its maxim is fundamentally affirmative. Come, yes, yes, bien, oui, oui. Deconstruction is affirmation. All right, thank you guys for coming out. Thanks, Greg, for running an awesome panel, and thank you all for uh, contributing to an awesome conversation.